evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review was sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The results from the 2022 elections in North Carolina have been determined. And it looks like a red wave for the Republican Party. Unlike other parts of the country where the expected red wave did not occur, that was not the reality in good old North State. Recognizing that reality, we have devoted several discussions to an examination of why, how, and what are the impacts of these results on African-Americans and people of color in this state. We, know, we now know that at the state level, all 120 seats of the North Carolina House of Representatives and the 50 seats in the North Carolina Senate were on the ballot. In those races, the Republican Party was able to secure a veto-proof majority and fell short of the same result in the House of Representatives by a mere one vote. Among the losses in the Senate was that of longtime Senator Toby Fitch, but the first African-American Republican from that district, Ken Fountainot, won elections to the House of Representatives. Ricky Hurtado, the lone Hispanic in the House, lost his race by a small margin, but two Asians, Yalu and Maria Cervani, won their elections to House seats. Also on the ballot were four North Carolina Court of Appeals seats and two North Carolina Supreme Court seats. In those races, the Republican candidates won by larger than expected margins. North Carolinians also voted for local governmental representatives and, and outside of the urban areas, the Republicans were able to achieve significant victories in just about every contested judicial race at the superior and district court levels, Republican candidates won. At the national level, all 435 House of Representatives seats were on the ballot, and North Carolina voted for 14 congressional seats. In these races, Democrats and Republicans split, and in a historic result and a bright spot in our analysis, three African Americans were elected. Among those who were elected is Representative Valerie Forshee who left her seat in the North Carolina Senate and was elected to replace Representative David Price in Congress, where she received 67% of the vote. As for the congressional races, the pending questions of whether the General Assembly will redistrict that diversity away during the upcoming legislation and how the U.S. Supreme Court will rule on the independent state legislative challenge that's presently pending before it. 
35 of the 100 seats in the U.S. Senate were also on the ballot, including one of two North Carolina seats. In that race, Sherry Beasley lost to Ted Budd. Big disappointment. Tonight, we're going to talk about the results and implications of the North Carolina-specific races. Joining us for this discussion is newly elected congressional representative Valerie Forshe, a former state senator from Orange County. So starting out, we want to uh, congratulate you, Congresswoman Forshe, on this victory. And thank you for your many years of service to your district and to our community. So welcome. Thank you um, so much for having me. Um, it's certainly an honor uh, to be able to continue service in this district um, and for this state. So thank you for this opportunity. Well, I, I think I ought to note uh, that during your public career, you have occupied just about every seat there is out of Orange County, <laughs> starting out with the uh, Board of Education and then to the uh, County Commission and then to the uh, North Carolina House and then to the uh, North Carolina Senate, uh, an admirable record that you have uh, created. And now you are going to uh, represent us. And I say us that even though you were elected in Orange County, you represent all of us. You go up to, uh, to Washington because we are coming to you uh, with our concerns and complaints uh, that, uh, that emerge. So, uh, you know, want our audience to be fully aware of the uh, scope of the service that you have provided uh, to us. So starting us out, um, can you first of all just share with our audience, why was it that you wanted to give up your seat in the North Carolina Senate and pursue the uh, replacement of uh, Congressman uh, Price who had uh, held that seat forever? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I'm not even sure that it was about wanting to give up my seat in the Senate, uh, but I think it was more about an opportunity that was presented in this district. This district, as it is drawn, includes Orange, Durham, Alamance, Person, Granville, and one precinct in Caswell County. When Congressman Price announced his retirement, um, there were a number of folk in this district um, whom I've served over a period of more than 20 years who asked me to consider it. Um, I think we knew that there would be um, a different sense, a different tone in the General Assembly in the next um, term, but it wasn't about not being there. It was about giving this district an opportunity for um, to be served by someone who did not fit the same model that we've had for 36 years. And certainly that's not to um, sound negative about what has happened with um, Congressman Price's um, service because indeed he has been a great public servant and has been able to bring many resources to this district. 
But this was an opportunity given the field of folk who had indicated that they would like to run um, to bring some experience um, for someone, as you mentioned, who has served at the local and state level, who has acquired um, knowledge about how you um, work for the people, how you are able to make concessions sometimes when it means that you can't have everything, but people want you to do something. And certainly it is not lost on me what it is like to serve in the minority, having served in the minority in the North Carolina General Assembly for 10 years. Uh, when I talked about it, the first thing people said to me, um, those who were somewhat um, skeptical, so, well, you know you're going to leave the minority to go to the minority. And I said, well, I know that there's a possibility. But when I look at the field of candidates, none of them had the experience of having served in the minority and therefore had not had the experience of how you work across the aisle to make things happen. Certainly, you know, we don't get bills pass with our names on it, but I can tell you that as a member of the North Carolina Senate um, Democratic Caucus, we informed a lot of bills that were passed. And so for that, I'm grateful. So, you know, um, again, it was about opportunity. It's, it was about having a representation that is female, a representation that's African-American. All mm -hmm. different possibilities. Huh? Well, you know, and, and, and I must say that, uh, you know, in your service, in the, uh, both in the House and in the uh, Senate, uh, you were in a position uh, via the power of the governor to keep distasteful legislation, some distasteful legislation, from uh, being enacted into law by upholding the uh, veto uh, that the uh, governor had uh, at that time. And uh, by that, uh, that was a, uh, those were victories uh, that the minority were, were able to, uh, uh, to achieve in both of those uh, houses. So uh, we, we certainly take our hats off to you uh, for, uh, for that. But, you know, in, in, in light of that, uh, now that you, we've lost some of the numbers in the Senate and we've lost some of the numbers in the House. Uh, looking back, how, how, do, how do you see the impact that those losses will have moving forward, knowing the, uh, the intent and flavor of the majority uh, that's uh, in both the House and Senate at this point? Well, it certainly poses a dilemma. Um, I think what, as you've mentioned, what has been... Um, most gratifying, particularly since 2018, when we broke the supermajorities, that we have been able to stave off bad legislation. Um, that not only were we able to stave off bad legislation, but there were those opportunities where uh, the other side wanted bipartisan support. And knowing that we could influence legislation because indeed, if you had bipartisan support, it was not likely that the governor would veto those bills. 
uh, that that opportunity does not exist in the Senate now, uh, will not exist rather in 2023. Knowing that we have just that slim one vote um, ability to sustain a veto in the House is, is concerning. And it should be troubling for most people that um, given where we were from 2013, when some of the most egregious um, legislation was passed, including um, voter ID and um, the lack of funding for unemployment, um, extended unemployment benefits at a time when we really needed them, um, this whole notion that the North Carolina General Assembly would never accept Medicaid expansion. All of those things happened beginning in 2013. But in 2018, we were able to influence legislation. Even you um, helped with us when we were talking about um, changing how we do law enforcement legislation and, and looking at what we could do to inform good um, gun laws and that sort of thing. There, in my opinion, that opportunity does not exist because it would require that in those situations where um, a veto vote can be called, that it means that every Democrat in the House has to be present if every Republican is present. And that means that people are not um, allowed to live their lives, that an emergency that comes up will make it seem as if people didn't care about sustaining a veto. I recall particularly when uh, Representative Sidney Batch was in the House and she was undergoing chemotherapy, but yet she came every time she thought a veto override vote was coming up. To put people in, in that kind of position to, to be that uncaring should be concerning. And it is not lost on me, and I would expect not lost on anybody who's paying attention, that that sort of thing can happen. Because the way that process runs, the speaker can put an override vote on the calendar every day until he decides to call that vote. And certainly we know that the presence of members is being counted as they walk through those gold doors. Mm. Who's he and who's not? Is this an opportune time for us to raise this veto override vote? So it's very concerning. Mm. Senator Fushi, you've mentioned um, how concerning this is, uh, and it can't be, I think, overstated. Um, you've also couched it in terms of those that are paying attention. It should be troubling to many. Can you share your thoughts about whether the community really appreciates the dire position that we're in in North Carolina as it relates to, you know, the, the ability to prevent um, additional egregious legislation from being passed and, and uh, being pushed forward? Unfortunately, I don't. Um, and I don't say that because it is um, the fault of anyone or to blame anyone. But, you know, we don't have the same kind of um, messaging that we once had. There are not people don't get the newspaper like they um, 
once did to read, uh, to stay informed. Um, people get a lot of their information from social media, which means it's not always accurate. Um, it's almost always with some kind of slant. Um, and I think with so much that has gone on, particularly since uh, the beginning of 2020, when we were, we have been isolated, um, we have not had the opportunity to see um, government in many phases uh, or many um, opportunities, whether it's local or state, we haven't had the opportunity to be present and to participate. And I think we haven't uh, talked about how important it is for everybody to be a part of the process. Um, when we went on lockdown in the General Assembly, we were given the opportunity at some point to participate in committee meetings online, but we can vote online. So, you know, people, and, and if you don't know how to access um, these meetings, then you're not a part of it. And it means that you don't have the opportunity to call or write your representative and say, hey, I see that you all are discussing this issue. My thoughts are these. Mm -hmm. Yep. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And, uh, we're talking with uh, Congresswoman Valerie Fushi, former uh, state senator from uh, Orange County, and uh, getting her uh, analysis and thoughts on the uh, North Carolina midterm election results. We're going to take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue this discussion, but we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, where we are just honored to have as, uh, as our guests uh, this evening, uh, Congresswoman uh, Valerie Fashi. Uh She is the uh, first African-American uh, woman, female, 
one first African American to be elected to Congress from the uh, fourth district, uh, a district that has been uh, uh, represented by uh, Congressman David Price uh, for, for years, uh, literally. And, uh, and for the first time in North Carolina history, we have uh, three African-Americans who have been elected uh, to uh, serve in, uh, in Congress. And uh, we are certainly uh, proud of that. And uh, also the fact that she comes from a district that is not what has been described as majority minority uh, district. Uh, it is, uh, that's a fusion. Uh, district. So uh, we're very proud of uh, Congresswoman uh, for she for uh, her uh, service and uh, her years that she has uh, provided uh, outstanding representation for us. But starting us off, I want to take a quick little um, detour in our conversation and ask uh, Congresswoman uh, for she to talk about uh, the um, unveiling of the uh, monument uh, at uh, UNC uh, Chapel Hill in honor of uh, her uh, cousin, James Cates, uh, who was uh, murdered uh, on that uh, campus in 1971, and uh, all of the uh, inadequacies surrounding uh, the investigation and prosecution of that case. So uh, uh, can you just kind of talk to our audience about of uh, the uh, importance and significance of the unveiling uh, ceremony that is occurring there at, uh, at Chapel Hill. That's certainly, and thank you for that opportunity. Actually, today is the 52nd anniversary of my cousin's murder uh, at near the pit on UNC's campus. It did occur on November 21st, 1970. And for 52 years, this community has not um, let the world forget um, that occurrence. He was murdered um, there after an event that was held there where community members were invited to come to campus in an effort to bring together the races. And he was stabbed by members of what was known as the Stormtroopers motorcycle gang. Uh, for us, we know them to have been white supremacists. They were allowed to leave the scene before they were arrested later. Um, but what was most troubling and what was most disheartening is that my cousin was not taken um, a short distance from that location to UNC hospitals where he could have been, his life could have been saved, um, that they were allowed to get away. Um, he was not even with my cousin attempting um, to transport him. Finally, a police officer put him in a patrol car and drove him there after an ambulance service did not come to transport him. Um, for that to have happened um, in a place like Chapel Hill, as, as I will say sometime later today, um, a place that is known for many as the southern part of heaven, for us in this community became the northern part of hell. For all of these years, 
nothing has been done except for um, a trial that um, really was not a trial, the whitewashing of his blood from, from those bricks um, there as they prepared for a football game the next day to remove any indication of that occurrence. So now we're at a point where not only has the town um, and the university um, to some extent acknowledged their role as being complicit in not saving his life, not providing for him what you would for any human, uh, the university is indeed erecting a monument in his honor um, such that what happened there uh, will never be forgotten and that cohorts of students now will be able to know that this history um, occurred. Um, and I would add, since you raised, um, have given me this opportunity to share that the Department of Justice has opened this as a cold case under the mm -hmm. Till Act. And we were happy to have been able to speak with um, people from that office, uh, agents from that office who are determining whether or not this is an investigation that the Department of Justice will go further with. Yeah, yeah a um, tragic event that uh, has occurred all too often uh, in, in, in the South. Country. And uh, people think that it was just during so-called Jim Crow Day that uh, events like that uh, occurred back in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. But uh, this was an event that uh, occurred in 1971, which was 70. supposed 1970. 1970, I'm sorry, which was supposed to be uh, enlightened period yeah. in, uh, in, in North Carolina, in an enlightened community, uh, UNC uh, Chapel Hill and the Chapel Hill uh, community. So uh, obviously, uh, we uh, share in uh, your loss and the pain and the history uh, that's there. But uh, we celebrate the fact that uh, you were able to uh, keep the feet to the fire, and uh, that there is now some um, visible uh, remembrance and memorial that uh, will uh, be present there on that uh, campus, and the students there now are aware of what has uh, has occurred. And, uh, so, and this is a part of the progress uh, yes. that, uh, that painful as it is, it's a part of the progress That's right. that uh, we That's right. are engaged in. Now, I know that you know, one of your priorities has been uh, voting rights uh, over the years, uh, particularly dealing with the uh, legislature uh, here in uh, North Carolina, where they took pains to uh, redistrict uh, every district in a way that uh, Republicans would maintain control. So the mere fact that we lost uh, two or three Senate seats and uh, two or three House seats is really a victory in a sense because that was not the plan. Uh, when, they, when they redistricted uh, the, uh, the state, it was with the intent that uh, virtually no one uh, would come back from the uh, Democratic Party, and certainly from uh, African-Americans. Uh, communities uh, that was there. So can you kind of talk about some of the other priorities that you carry with you as you now go uh, up up south uh, to uh, D.C. Uh, to represent us in Congress? Yeah, thank you for that. And certainly uh, voting rights has been um, 
a priority for me, um, along with uh, providing adequate educational opportunities. As you mentioned earlier, I did start as a member of the Chapel Hill Carver City Schools Board because um, I am the mother of two sons. And I learned uh, with my own research and trying to be as involved as I could be with my sons that something happens, particularly in these um, well-resourced communities uh, with African-American boys by grade four, that you know the level of achievement for whatever reason either levels off or starts to decline. And what I saw prompted me to um, be an advocate for children whose mothers could not be in the schools um, as I could and who may have been ignored just because they're invisible to some people. Um, we still have some of those issues today, um, particularly as it relates to higher education and how we are able to fill those spaces. So um, I would love to continue to work on those efforts, you know, to make sure that we are providing the best educational opportunities for um, our people, not to mention to have um, our, our, our youth when they graduate from college to be able to um, get good jobs and start contributing back to society without paying every dime that they get back for student loans. Um, the fact that we um, had made some gains as it relates to um, President Biden's effort and now for those to be stopped or on pause until something else happens. You know, those are things that are real to many people. And I believe it's our responsibility to do something about that. But still, particularly in this state, we need to continue to work for access to affordable health care. Um, if indeed this state is not going to um, bring forward passage of Medicaid expansion, there has to be a way that the federal government provides for people who live in states where it seems to be more about political ideology than it is about the health of those who live within uh, those states' borders. So I will not give up that fight um, such that people who live in the state where I am a representative are getting access to that. I, when we see the number of rural hospitals that have closed in particular, and you understand who lives in these areas and how these people are not being given access to health, um, it, it saddens me that it is about a political decision to just be different from what people want than to provide for what you don't have to spend a whole lot of money for. When the federal government is giving this money, you know, I remember when um, in the state legislature, they were saying, well, you can't count on the federal government. They may give and they may take it away. Well, look at all the states that have taken and they're still getting. <laughs> And they're getting our portion because we have decided that we don't want it while people are dying because they need it. Yeah. So I, I, I can't give up on that, Professor. Um, I, that's a fight that we have to continue. We have to continue fight for voting rights. We have to continue fighting for rights in general as we see what is happening, that they can be taken away. Um, I was glad that being in Washington, D.C., 
um, last week for orientation, I was there when the Senate held that test vote for same-sex marriage equality, you know, to get this done before there's a change in the balance of power. Those opportunities, when they come, we need to take advantage of them so that we can secure uh, those rights in a manner that, that, you know, they're codified and people can expect that this is a right that I have that I have gotten that will not be taken away. Um, so, you know, again, civil rights, human rights, what we do for the people um, whom we serve because it's the right thing to do is where I hope to keep my priorities. And Representative Fushi, can you talk about the different perspective that you have to bring being a congressional representative as opposed to being a North Carolina state senator and, and the points that you've kind of highlighted and we're happy to hear that. Um, can you talk about how being a representative in the US Congress is, is different and maybe in what ways it's similar to the representation that you've provided as a um, general assembly representative, both at the house level and the Senate level? That's a very interesting question um, because one of the things that I, I learned last week for the first week of new member orientation is that there is a difference in how things are done, particularly because um, you, have, you have an institution that um, pays great respect to seniority. And when I came to the General Assembly, for uh, the most part, we were representatives that um, pretty much came in somewhat, maybe not even if you, or equal, if you're not in leadership, but pretty much, you know, Democrats had the same amount of power. One Democrat, the same amount of power as another Democrat. That's not the case there. Um, seniority plays um, a, a great role in how things are done. But also, um, there are so many um, caucuses um, that provide advocacy for certain issues. Um, and, and you're courted to some extent, uh, recruited to some extent to join certain caucuses. Now, being a new member, you know, trying to take all of this information in and deciding where, if this is where um, I need to be to provide the best representation for my district, or should I be over here? Or if I'm in both of these, is there going to be a conflict? Will there be times when this caucus is advocating for this issue and this caucus of which I'm a member is advocating for another issue and they conflict? How does that work? Um, I have joined several caucuses um, and I have been given the opportunity to learn more about how we provide influence, um, not just with um, members of my house, but how that plays in with the members of the Senate. Um, you know, it has been in North Carolina that the twain never should meet. 
you know, the House did what it did, the Senate did what it did, and we don't care what you say, and we don't care, we care even less about what you say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and we'll talk about it in, in conference. I haven't sensed that, um, I haven't sensed that that is the case there, but it's early yet. What I do know is that this freshman class of the 118th Congress has had an opportunity to meet. And I have been really impressed with how we are advocating for the same causes, that there are so many of us who believe that the time has passed for us to talk about real legislation that's going to protect our environment, that almost all of us are geared toward doing whatever we can to make sure voting rights are where they need to be, that um, yet again, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act um, should be up and that it should be passed. I was, um, you know, there were several members of this class whose races we watched while we were at orientation, waiting for that final count to come in and, and celebrating with them uh, when it indeed it was uh, proclaimed that they were congresspersons elect. Um, but knowing that, you know, we are here, uh, we have been embraced by current members, sitting members who see us as um, more troops to continue the fight. Um, I think we are excited about um, being able to do that because the red wave as we noted earlier, that should have or was expected to, I should say, um, take over um, for Congress did not, mm -hmm. that Republicans only hold a slim majority um, in the House, I think is seven. And in the Senate, we still have the majority. So, you know, understanding that we now have divided government, I'm hoping that that means that we're able to influence legislation such that we're doing what we need to do for the people. We're at a, a very critical stage where we're trying to come out of a pandemic. Um, we're talking about um, how the economy moves forward. We know that there's still a possibility of a rail strike um, that may cripple the economy going forward into 2023. Those are things that I think we have to start working on uh, ASAP. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with the newly elected congressional representative for the fourth congressional district here in North Carolina, Valerie Fouché. She is currently finishing up her term as state senator for Orange County. Uh, we should also note that she is the first African-American to be elected to represent the 4th Congressional District. We're going to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. 
The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with newly elected Congressional Representative Valerie Fushi, who is finishing up her term as state senator for North Carolina for Orange County. And um, I want to say Senator Fushi, Representative Fushi, you've got uh, two hats that you're wearing right now. Um, can you share your thoughts? So you thank you for um, you know talking with us about the issues that you plan on continuing to highlight as a congressional representative. I'd like to get your thoughts and kind of turn back and look at our current circumstances here in North Carolina. Um, when we think about the North Carolina Supreme Court and Court of Appeals and the election results, and of course we know so many of these issues that are dealt with at a legislative level uh, are addressed ultimately by the court. And so if we're talking about at the federal level, of course, the United States Supreme Court, at the state level, we've got our North Carolina Appellate Intermediate Court and the North Carolina Supreme Court. Can you share your thoughts on how the current makeup of the court may have an impact um, on legislation that's coming out of, of course, a general assembly that is even more Republican than it was before. Um, thank you for that question. Um, yes, I, I, again, I think it's, it's quite concerning. Uh, we've been able to, through the courts, um, as they were, fairly um, situated, um, get decisions that reflected uh, the will of the people in North Carolina, particularly as it related to voting rights um, and redistricting. And so I, I, when, you, when you asked that question, I saw a map in the Carolina Journal, not a paper that I normally read, but it comes to me free. And so I do take a look at what the other side is saying. But in that edition that I just saw, there were maps and those maps showed, I don't know if that was the intent, but the map showed where Republicans have their base in North Carolina, and it showed it from 2018 and then 2022. And to see how counties are presenting now as it relates to elections, 
was very startling because what I don't think they intended to do was to show the real effects of redistricting. Mm -hmm. What that those maps showed me was that you can stack and pack and create districts that will present um, an election the way you want it to occur if you have the power to do that. Mm -hmm. And when you have a legislature who um, will be redistricting our congressional districts when they return in 2023, when you remember what those leaders said some time ago when we had a 10-3 congressional map when there were only 13 members of our delegation, when asked, why did you draw a 10-3 map? The response was because we couldn't figure out how to draw an 11-2 map. <laughs> that kind of, um, that notion still exists yeah. with the leadership today. And it is, shouldn't be lost on any of us that the goal was not to present a congressional delegation of seven Democrats and seven Republicans. And certainly we don't think, we don't expect that when the new congressional maps are drawn, that they will yield that kind of result. Not being able to have the courts to fairly assess whether or not those maps were drawn fairly is very troubling. Um, we know that we know that that is not going to be an outcome that is going to represent the will of North Carolina's people. I just there's no way I can believe that. I think that um, going forward, Republicans in power, Republicans who have the majority are not likely to present fair maps. I think that uh, we should give that opportunity to occur and examine it for what it is. Make sure that people understand that uh, representation matters. But if that representation is not drawn in a fair manner, then your vote really does not count. Mm -hmm. Then you can really say my vote doesn't count. Um, the whole notion of one person, one vote should be sacred to us. And it goes back to something I said earlier about whether or not we are paying attention enough to understand the, impl the implications of what we do or what we don't do at the ballot box, how we show up and how we don't show up. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm concerned that um, statewide elections, we continue to lose. We lost every judicial race as it has already been said. Uh, we, but we lost at the top of the ticket, we lost a candidate that it wasn't just about making history, it was about making history with someone who would represent us well, who was qualified, who was competent, who was capable, and who did the work running across 100 counties, sharing her vision 
and hearing from people and promising to do what she knew was right. Well, you know, in, 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 light, in light of that, and uh, particularly looking at the population shifts that have occurred in North Carolina, and the fact that uh, in this past election, when uh, democracy was on the ballot, mm -hmm. that you find in uh, the urban areas that uh, only uh, Wake, uh, Durham, and Orange County uh, with respect to African-American outperformed where they were last uh, during the last election. And that in the down east uh, counties uh, where the bulk of African-Americans uh, reside, uh, the they, African-American community underperformed uh, where they were in previous years. What, what is it that can be done to uh, change that? And uh, you, you kind of spoke to, and what I call it, uh, a kind of uh, political apathy that has, uh, has set in. And as an elected leader, uh, and by default, a leader of our political uh, community, what, what do you project having to be done to uh, change that, uh, that current reality? I, I think first and foremost, we have to always be messaging that we cannot wait until we are just about ready to start an election season to make sure that people are informed. Uh, your, your note about what has happened in Eastern North Carolina where we lost six African-American representatives. We lost two Senate seats with Toby Fitch and the seat that um, that Senator Baysmore held. Oh. In the House, we lost the seat that Representative Galliard, Representative Terry Garrison, uh, Representative Linda Cooper-Suggs, um, and one more, uh, Representative Howard Hunter. We lost all of those seats. And, and those are areas where um, African-Americans um, should have turned out and should have brought victories for themselves by electing or re-electing those representatives. It cannot be that um, we are not messaging all year, that we are not reminding our constituents that democracy is fragile um, and that it remains on the line. It's not that we were so successful in 2022 that we no longer have to worry about that. We said democracy is on the ballot. Democracy will always be on the ballot because there are always gonna be those who will try to destroy it and build something that works better for them. It is not that everybody wants inclusivity. <laughs> there are people who want to remain in power and the only way that they can do that is to have somebody else subject to them. And so we have to decide that we don't want to be the subjects, that what we have done through um, civil rights, what we have done through uh, pushing for human rights, what we have done to make sure that we have a seat at the table, 
We have to keep doing it. It is not that we have arrived. It is not that we have overcome. It is that we are overcoming as long as we're still moving, as long as we're still pushing, as long as we are still telling the story and not forgetting what once was, because certainly it can be that way again. I don't know how to do that better than as a leader, taking every opportunity just as um, talking with you all today and hoping that when this is aired, that people are hearing and they're having these discussions, that we go back to having our discussions in our barbershops and our beauty salons. And yes, you don't have to do it from the pulpit, but we need to go back to gathering in our worship spaces. You can do it in the fellowship hall. You can have a meeting there. Other folk are doing that. And somewhere along the line, we have to not be ashamed of sharing our love for ourselves and our ability to protect ourselves from those who would wish us harm. I don't know how to make it clearer, but that has been um, my goal. When, when it looked like um, I might be successful, it wasn't so much that I campaigned for myself and people will tell you that I campaigned for Sherry Beasley because I felt that at the top of the ticket to have her there, if Sherry Beasley won, all of us would win. That was my message. And that's the message that we should take forward, that when we fight, we win. When we show up, we win. When we do what we need to do, we win. But complacency is never going to be our friend. We cannot sit at home and we cannot talk about what is or is not happening or what it means or may not mean if I vote. Vote and see what happens. Amen, Reverend Fushy. I mean, <laughs> Representative Fushy. <laughs> Which raises this question that I'd love to get your thoughts on. So when you talk about being engaged and that we have to fight for ourselves, what are your thoughts about encouraging young people to get involved as public servants? So yes, we all need to get out and vote and to exercise and be engaged in that way. Uh, I, I think your, you set and provide a really wonderful example of how to serve the community at many different levels. And so of course, one of your early um, areas as a public servant was the school board. Can you talk about how we can get um, especially young people to think about getting involved in politics and uh, particularly at the local level, maybe even with an eye towards moving into um, a national position at, at some point, but, but that we need to be engaged at all levels, especially at the local level. So I, I think that you've made a good point that um, I think we should be encouraging um, a new era of leaders every day. And I think that the best way to do that is to encourage them to be engaged by joining local boards and commissions. Um, you start on, on these boards and commissions, you not only learn how government actually works by being a part of an advisory team 
um, that advises those who are already elected, but you also learn um, and develop networks. I, I think people don't realize how beneficial it is to be in a group where you are working alongside others, um, bringing forward solutions, um, ideas that work for whatever um, situation you're in, whether it's your, your city or your county, um, indeed your state. But having those networks also puts your name out there that you have served on this board or you've served on this commission or you've served on several. And people who have served with you will remember you when they see your name or when you start talking about um, your interest in providing a different level of service. Or better yet, they will encourage you to step up because they have seen your work and they're yeah. willing to get behind you. Tell me what I can do to help you. Okay, so, so I've served with Brandy. Brandy did this, Brandy did that. She was always, she was committed. She showed up, she helped us with the ideas. Um, and then I work with her over here. She is a servant. I think she's ready for elected servants. And they'll tell their friends who tell their friends who tell their friends. This is a person who's committed to serving you. And, and, and that's how we get young folk engaged. Because we are not, as, as, as proud as I am to be where I am, I am not the fourth district's future. I'm here to stand in the gap until it's time for the next era of our leaders. And so I have a responsibility to reach back and to mentor and to help make ready so that we have that bench. Mm -hmm. Well, outstanding. Thank you for that encouragement, that inspirational message. We hope that our listening audience will uh, consider becoming involved and certainly encouraging young people around them to do so. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, the newly elected congressional representative for the fourth congressional district here in North Carolina, Valerie Bouchy. She is the first African-American elected to represent the fourth congressional district. And she is finishing up her term as state senator for the state of North Carolina, Orange County. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.